Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Bald Move Prestige podcast. This time we're talking about the big 20th anniversary for Moulin Rouge that came out uh, just about this date. I think it might have come out the day before by the time you hear this uh, uh, in June of 2001 and hit with a big splash. This movie really kind of dominated the public conscious that summer. It spawned a uh, was that Lady Marmalade. <laughs> yeah. Hit hit number one song, mm-hmm. uh, popular video, which is a cover, uh, by the way. I didn't know that, but it is. Yeah, and uh, there, yeah, it's uh, it's something that I saw a couple times in the theater, like maybe once, maybe twice, and then we had it on uh, probably videotape. Honestly, I don't know if I had a, a DVD player back then, and watched it quite a bit. When I got, it's it's one of those things that, you know I kind of love these style of musicals. Not particularly this style of musical, which is more of a jukebox musical, but I do love the big pageantry and show and the lights and colors. Um, it was directed by Baz Luhrmann, who is kind of known for bright lights and big colors and things like that. Uh, he's He directed what's called the Red uh, Curtain Trilogy, which contains this film, Romeo plus Juliet, and uh, Strictly Ballroom, which I've, I've seen the whole trilogy. Uh We'll talk about that here in a minute. It was written by Baz Luhrmann and his writing pro- partner, Craig Pierce, which also uh, was the co-writer of Strictly Ballroom uh, and Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby, uh, one of uh, Baz's recent works. It stars Nicole Kidman kind of at the peak of her powers. Uh, you've probably seen her lately in Big Little Lies on HBO or the Top of the Lake sequel stars Ewan McGregor. I mean, he's Obi-Wan Kenobi and. In a couple scenes, he's got the long hair and the beard, and it just looks like time-traveling Obi-Wan stuck in a Sherlock Holmes mystery. It's pretty pretty <laughs> fucking cool. Uh, John Leguizamo, uh, which you will probably know from the Super Mario Brothers movie. Jim Broadbent, who most recently you've seen him on Game of Thrones as Archmaester Ebros, tormenting Sam, uh, as Professor Slughorn on Harry Potter, in Hot Fuzz and Gangs of New York, and Richard Roxburgh who I only recognized from as playing the second banana henchman in Mission Impossible 2. He's the guy that got his pinky cigar sniped. Cigar snipped, rather. Yeah. Uh, so we we talk about uh, what your thoughts on this movie are, Jim. Is this the first time you've seen it? What's your relationship with it? Uh, how many other Baz Luhrmann films have you seen? All that good stuff. What do you think? Uh, you might be surprised to know that this is not the first time I've seen this movie. Um, I watched it... 15, 13 years ago or something. I don't know. It's been over a decade since I've seen it. Um, and I, I want to say that Romeo plus Juliet and this are the only two Baz Luhrmann uh, movies that I've seen. I, I have not seen any of the uh, other musicals he's done. Um, which is that first one strictly ballroom uh, musical? It's not a musical, but it, it's about ballroom dancing in Australia or maybe New oh. Zealand. I think Australia. Yeah, he's Australians, probably Australia. Yeah. OK. Um, although this is set in Paris, so Australians can make movies about That's other true. countries. Uh, That's true. It's been said. Great Gatsby, America, you know, great American novel. He's he's master of all continents, apparently. Yeah, I never saw that one. Um, I've heard mixed reviews about it, but also. I don't know. I like Leonardo DiCaprio, but it wasn't really like up my alley style wise. Uh, Uh Neither was this, though. When I first saw it, I was not like I didn't seek this movie out to go watch it. Um, I had definitely like, you know, heard the song a million times on the radio that summer when this thing came out and because it was unavoidable if you listen to the radio. Uh, And then an ex of mine was living downtown in Indianapolis with a bunch of like theater uh, performers. And so when this thing came out, of course, of course, uh, Ah. they were all into it. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, I was hanging out down there uh, one night and they were like, yeah, let's all watch Moulin Rouge. So I sat down with them and watched it thinking, oh boy, I'm going to have to like, you know, these people are going to be very disappointed in me for not liking this movie because they're all, very, You're be very exposed as a very uncool anti bohemian guy in front of all your artist right. friends, Jim. And it turned out it was a super entertaining movie. Um, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it and I had a blast. Uh, the first half of this movie is very, very funny, in my opinion. Uh, it's got that mm. 
like Australian sense of humor. I think that, that Baz brings to it. Uh, maybe his writing partner. I don't know uh, where that guy's from, but yeah, you, you can feel it sort of in the DNA and there's like a, something to it that says hey this is australian um Mm -hmm. and i find it really funny the second half of this movie is super depressing (laughs) and just it the the, overall this thing is a tragedy but it starts off with such a flare and like literally starts off with it right you've got the opening scene with the conductor uh kind of like hyping you up for this movie uh it's it's a good time like sitting down and watching this movie you feel pretty good at the beginning you still feel pretty good at the end, even though it is a tragedy. Um, but, you know, it's 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 good. I recommend watching it, even if you're not a fan of musicals, because it is it is a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, that's where it goes from just being like romantic in the conventional sense to like romantic in the the Anne, yeah. Anne of Green Gable sense that like, you know, the tragedy at the end makes everything else more poignant. And right. the 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 mortal life and death fight for something so. Um, temporary mm-hmm. uh, and ephemeral like makes it that much more poignant but it is interesting because like I you know I'm a lot older that I watched this movie and uh, like I got a little bit different of lessons um, and a lot of things that you know a lot different things I guess jumped out at me from the screen but but yeah I want to echo you this is just a good time this movie is a fucking straight party like the first two thirds of this film has just got its, its foot to the pedal and doesn't stop and even when it gets depressing at the end it still goes out with such a finale mm-hmm. that and he pulls out all the stops in the and 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 all the tricks in the book because the edit this film is edited to within an inch of its life almost to yeah. a, a, a extent of parody I think like. Um, like the bit, there's a big reveal. Uh, I don't want to spoil the movie, but there's a big, big reveal about a secret performance um, at, at one point in the film. And I think there was 17 edits in like a second and a half. Yeah. And I was just like, what? Uh, but it's like that kind of kinetic, frantic pace that uh, it's like shot like a movie, a, a music video and the thing's over two hours long. Um, yeah. They're, they're somehow and- able to capture like the feeling of being drunk in a dance hall where there is music and lights and dancing girls and, and a, a yes. huge crowd. Like they're able to capture that in film and it yeah. really works. It, it looks like the best time to go to the Moulin Rouge, which I just learned in researching for this is an actual real place. I thought this was yeah. all some kind of fantasy shit me too um and it kind of looks like it does it's like if you went to uh the moulin rouge the red mill at the at the peak of its life on rolling on molly but then or he absent, goes and like yeah. inserts like or absent and but then he goes and adds like magical realism on top of that where like literally things are sparkling and mm-hmm. shining and shimmering and all that kind of stuff which like i said i repeat myself you're like you're rolling on molly um oh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just beautiful and and I you told me how much did this film cost? Fifty million. I know it was twenty years ago, but it just goes to show you you can throw a lot of of, of people that can so close. You can throw a lot of costume and set design at the screen and two A list stars for forty fifty million dollars, and you can see every single dollar of it. Like it's just and and again, uh, the thing that I kept on it kept on gobsmacking me is when I was looking at pictures of the old Moulin Rouge and even the, its current incarnation and like how much it's like, yeah, that's exactly what it looked like. Huh. Like all the, the big guard, the big elephant uh, room, which I guess was an opium uh, exclusive, like VIP opium den, <laughs> the extravagant gardens they had in the bag, like all that shit was, was real at least until the place burnt down in like the early 20th century and they rebuilt it without but, the opium dens. Without the elephant, oh, shocking, fuck. without the gardens, like all that, some of that stuff has, has been lost. But uh, hey, you can still go see uh, pretty young creatures of the night dancing for your pleasure. Uh, well, I don't know now with COVID. Maybe, maybe it's taken yeah. the last joyful thing from us. But yeah. Apparently um, that's where the can-can was invented, that dance. Right. Right. Oh, I, yes, you're right. It, it's that they, they innovated there. Yeah, and there's a whole thing about that in the movie, right? Like, she doesn't want to just be a can-can dancer. She wants to be a real actress, whatever that means in in terms of 1900 Paris. I don't know. Also, can-can is used as, like, a martial art in this film uh, at one point (laughs) in the movie. Yep. (laughs) Which is pretty inventive. The thing that really... It's it's a good time. 
the thing that impressed me most about this movie is the vision. I don't know how you get from something in your brain like that to the screen. Uh, it really at all. Like I, I would never have the artistic vision to do anything like this. And so when I see it on screen, it just blows my mind. Like that first 20 minutes of this movie is shot after shot seamlessly blended together with all of these effects that most of them are probably done like with just slick editing and in camera uh-huh. stuff. And then, you know, yeah. you layer a little bit of uh, computer graphics on top of that. I, I don't know the, the vision of Boslerman uh, that he's able to capture is incredible. I think it helps when you get, cause I, it's my understanding that this was at least one pretty well-regarded film already and it's it was, based yeah. on like a, a play and stuff. So like, it's easier when you have something original and you can go gonzo with it because I, it's funny because mm-hmm. I don't know whether Strictly Ballroom just was like when he was so much more lower budget and lower profile, but it's a much more grounded like it's pretty much set uh, in contemporary or within a decade of contemporary Australia slash New Zealand life. It, it's like it's the absurdity of this like uh, high end uh, ballroom scene and, and how it's like much more, you know, it's like this extravagant, beautiful sport, but it's ran by these stuffy, uncompromising, you know, rules lawyers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the and, and romance between people. But there's like there's definitely extravagance in the storytelling, but nothing like this scale. Yeah. So it's like, but that's I'm as far as I know is like an original thing that he wrote where, you know, Romeo and Juliet, Great Gatsby, uh, this where he just really like, you know, amps up, like you said, the vision. Maybe it helps if you have a sturdy backbone that you can just like, let's crank all the levers to 11 on all of this shit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like the Great Gatsby's not so much about the Great Gatsby, but what it felt like to be at one of the Great Gatsby's parties that he's that he's that he's throwing to try to draw the attention of his his love you know it's like that and yeah, maybe and, that's the, yeah. the quality that makes uh basil Urban's stuff so compelling is he's able to capture a feeling uh in yeah film. well you know it's something that um he mentioned in an interview that like a big inspiration for this was an experience he had watching some bollywood films in india with like a packed house like a three and a half hour bollywood film where people are like screaming and crying and fighting and then songs burst out and the whole thing and like nobody's worried about being cool and and like all of the english speaking cast and crew felt like they just learned hindi in like 15 minutes because like all everything that the screen is pitching you're receiving because it's all based on color and dance and song and emotion and like that had a profound effect on him and his filmmaking um maybe i mean i could think you could make an argument that maybe he took some of the exoticism uh a little too far in, but then that's kind of like this particular time on the continent. They were obsessed with things from, you know, the East and, and how, how mysterious and exotic and, and, and erotic it, it, it could be, you know, hair yeah. and life, et cetera, stuff like that. So, but it is, yeah, but, but it, I don't know, man, it's, it's, um, it's just a visual, it's just a visual and, and audio feast. And again, like the, what do you think of jukebox musicals? I know you've seen at least one other one, which is rock of ages. That's the one with Tom oh, Cruise that we yeah. saw. I, I think it was the fourth bald movie we ever did. Right. Um, right. Because that's the thing. Like if we've talked about all the reasons you might like this film, but if you don't like this film, the reason is it's, this is just the biggest budget, most visually extravagant, glee club type medley bullshit like this the is only the only real movie. complaint this is the this, this is just a glee club this is just glee club this yeah. is pitch perfect as a period piece with the lushness turned to the 211 yeah. um and i can see people dismissing it as that because this is lazy it's so much easier it's like it's, it's bad enough to be a jukebox musical but when you're literally like slicing a song into four different parts and we like you're just cheating this is not nearly as an impressive and a tar- but like it's i think fun. it's a Shut different up. skill uh yeah. yeah like layering the the way he layers the music on top of each other he doesn't just like you know for for four bars here we're gonna sing smells like teen spirit and for four more bars we're gonna sing uh you know uh lady marmalade and four more bars we're gonna sing bon jovi he he layers it all right like he's taking the the baseline from this one song and he's putting it on top of and he's remixing he's doing uh fucking modest mouse shit here or whatever like yeah it it's a different skill it's not it's maybe not as impressive to some people i i think the only thing i don't like about the jukebox musical style is i'm 
spending a lot of time and a lot of brain power just recognizing songs uh, oh, from yeah. the jukebox musical. And I'm not paying attention as much to what's going on on screen. Uh, so it kind of takes me out of it a little bit. Whereas if they had written original piece, I would be immersed in the visuals and the audio uh, and not thinking about, oh, yeah, that lyric is from this song. Because that's not important, See, a lot right? Of, but I have to do no, it. No, it's not. Watching that. But a lot of this stuff, like, I only recognize, if I'm being honest, about half the songs. So, like, yeah, yeah. I give up pretty quick. There's some things, like, you know, like Mama Mia, where it's like, oh, yeah, I know all these. But, like, this, yeah, like, I, you know, who, I had no, I'd never heard until I heard this song, um, you know, Nat, Nat King Cole's Nature Boy. Uh, hmm. So. Uh, yeah, I don't know that one. Right. Like, it's like there's a bunch a bunch of them here that like, you know, there's a there's a couple of classic rocking. And I mean, he like there's like 50 different songs in that love montage where like she's trying to argue that like she just is a strictly business type of a girl. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, but what about love? They must pull like the chorus lines from 50 different songs, man. Yeah. Um, they the musical point, credits in this. They do maybe the most movie. ballsy thing I've in the entire movie is trying oh, yeah? to get Ewan McGregor to sing a line of. uh Whitney Houston's fuck. What is the name of that song? Uh, I'm blanking. I will always love you. The yes. bodyguard one. Yes. Okay, okay. They, they try and get him to do a. Did we switch e- brains this line. morning? What? We did. Yeah. <laughs> You're the ones. Yeah, yeah. What the hell? Can't think of any names, uh, but you know, and they, they pull it off reasonably well, but it's not Whitney yeah. Houston. Come on. Yeah. Um, I, there's, you, you mentioned about this, this movie being very funny. Um, it's funny in, in a very kind of three stooges, almost slapstick kind of way Oh yeah. where it's like it's all about mistaken identity that then just keeps compounding and, and compounding. And that mistaken identity led to this awkward situation that like it's it's not like really sophisticated verbal wordplay or, you know, things no. like that. It's it's more of just like very broad situational humor. But like he there's no he has there's no shame this movie has in any of its like. Like it's essentially Austin, you know what? The, a lot of the comedy is like Austin Powers, um, like holding grapefruits in front of his dick kind of style stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you know, guy spying on something with a telescope, thinking he's seeing one thing and seeing something else, and being it's that kind of laughs. But they, I, I don't know. I think they're really funny, especially since they are. Like Nicole Kidman goes for fucking broke oh, on this. Jesus shit. Christ, that elephant scene, man. Some of the shit she's doing in her, like, uh, you know, trilling and yipping like a little fox. And it's like it if she didn't if there was any less ounce of commitment, it would all fall apart. Yeah. But she is completely committed to it. And, and it really works. And other thing is, like, um, I don't know how good these people are singers. They probably had a lot of autotune help. But like, I think they sound good in this movie and they have an in- an insane amount of charisma. Mm-hmm. Like Ian McGregor is a beautiful man. He's got his hair dyed like cherry cola red. Uh, it's he's he's clean shaven. She like I don't think that. Uh, um, I just I just pulled it. Nicole Kidman. I don't think Nicole Kidman's ever looked as beautiful and glowing. Like the mm-hmm. way they light her is like she's just like a fucking moonstone or some shit. And the costumes they have her in and like being surrounded by dancing and stuff. And like, oh, like you said, all the practical effects like this is like a huge cast with big costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess Nicole Kidman got pretty severely injured uh, to this. She was confined to a wheelchair for several weeks during the performance. And a lot of times yeah. when you've seen her just from the waist up, it's because she's in a wheelchair and all, all that kind of like actual hustle and sweat comes through just like it does in some mm-hmm. of the other classic musicals like uh, singing in the rain, you know, uh, these people out there just actually busting their ass and big mm-hmm. long. And well, these are not big long takes, but they're actually doing the thing. And, and you can tell. Well, yeah, and, I mean, it's uh, got its roots in, in theater, right? And, and theater, you know, I, I don't want to disparage the people who make movies because making a movie is an art of its own. And it's also difficult in many ways. Uh, theater seems like another level of difficulty where you are physically exerting yourself to the point of exhaustion Probably every night if you're on a really popular show. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the goal of every theater actor is to get on one of those popular shows. Uh, So, yeah, I have a huge amount of respect for what they do. Uh, I would also say the I think you're selling the comedy a little bit short on this Mm. movie because, yes, there is a lot of Three Stooges like, you know, mistaken identity, situational comedy stuff in here. But there's also just some impeccable timing and 
extremely tight choreographing of stuff um, from from all these actors like they the way Nicole Kidman you know goes over the top uh, in those scenes is like you said perfect but then you've got like the Duke who's coming in essentially twirling his mustache on screen uh, mm-hmm. and he's such a like I don't know the characters they've constructed here are such uh, characters and yeah. the the way that the actors, all those lead actors performing these characters is just perfect. And I cannot imagine. Uh, I, I can't imagine this movie succeeding without them being absolutely everything they needed to be in those scenes. Yeah. And you talk because like, you know, Nicole Kidman, like her performance without the counterpart of Ewan being kind of awkward and playing his mistaken part of the uh, uh, yeah. identity. Uh, Jim Broadbent and being and sort of Roxburgh disgusted have. by what she's doing, or like turned off by how or just like like yeah, what the yeah. and and she can't figure out why she keeps getting going through her like okay, well, what are the really weird debased Frenchmen into catalog <laughs> right. and trying to go lower and lower common to not like weirder and weirder into the whatever fantasy he's into and because he's hot and cold like I just want to get straight to the point but I can't perform yeah you're right and and uh, some of that stuff like I said you know if if the other performers weren't up to that standard and yeah. weren't like really selling it even her committing wouldn't wouldn't work mm-hmm. um and i also i think it's interesting that richard roxburgh is actually a handsome man like oh, this yeah. is this guy isn't repellent yeah except for his attitude and his outlook on nicole kidman as his property but yeah. this guy is like he's at least as good looking as like sir anthony from downton abbey and everybody was like super fucking hot you know for him to hook up with uh edith or whatever so like this guy's not like he when he walked in i remember thinking like yeah this guy because usually um there's something like this guy would be you have like tobacco teeth Mm -hmm. or he would be enormously fat or you know there would be something like but no he's genteel and he seems like he has good manners and like you know he's not as good looking as ewan mcgregor uh, but who the fuck is right? Uh, and it, and and I, I thought that was a nice touch that like the reason that he's repellent is not because he's unattractive or because of his mm-hmm. the fact that he's wealthy. It's just he's a pig, you know, uh, across a few axes. Yeah. Um, they, they, they do a really a really good job of making people look attractive in this when they want to be, and people look unattractive when they need to be. Because um, I'm not a huge fan of Nicole Kidman. I think she's fine i've seen her a lot of things that i would i would describe her as good in uh, she's a very good actress but also I, i've never been like particularly attracted to her physically okay it, 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 but this movie like the way that they like highlight her as you know the diamond uh, whatever it is the sparkling diamond sparkling diamond uh they do a good job of really amping that up uh her attractiveness and i know that's probably like People are losing their minds going, what? She's like the most attractive, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. Everybody's got their, their she's just, a, yeah. she's just another woman kind of, or just another dude or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, is mine. Right. Uh, Drew Barrymore, another one of mine. Oh. Um, but yeah, I, I, I pick up the Nicole Kidman spectrum though. Yeah. Uh, what do we, I, I guess we should, before we get like in the big spoilers, um, Although, like I said, it's it's uh, this might be one of those things where like we've already said most of the things we want to say about the movie. Maybe we should tell people what this is about uh-huh. uh, if you haven't seen it. Uh, so this is about the real life. Turns out Moulin Rouge, the Red Mill, this uh, place that was in a village of Paris called the Montmartre, I think, which was either the the center of the Bohemian world, uh, the the home of the children of the revolution. Uh, that loved nothing more than truth, freedom, beauty, and love, or it's the village of sin and the devil's altar, uh, depending on which side of, I guess, the the, the Parisian cultural divide you, you lived in. <laughs> yeah, um, your generation, your age group. And this is about a very uh, privileged bohemian, uh, Ewan McGregor, who has a very wealthy father who kind of runs away. And I, I guess there's a term for this type of bohemian. They call it the haute bohemian, the high bohemian, mm-hmm. the aristocratic that have taken essentially, you know, vows of poverty, just like the recreationally pop. And he's he goes out there with no money and he just gets the shittiest flat he can and the shittiest typewriter. And he's going to write about love and all these things, except he's never audience you won't believe this Ewan McGregor's never ever been in love how can you write about love with truth and freedom and beauty without experiencing it firsthand 
he through a series of comical uh, misunderstandings falls in with a troop of other bohemians that are going to pitch a new show uh, called Spectacular Spectacular, I think, to the owner of the Moulin Rouge, played by Jim Broadbent. Um, simultaneously, he's trying to arrange a deal between his wealthy duke to secure the uh, financial future of Moulin Rouge and to improve it and turn it into a, re- you know, try to get it out of the body house and and the vaudeville and into like high theater. And that's the the dearest dream in Nicole Kidman's character uh, who wants to be a real actress who doesn't want to be a can-can dancer. Um, um, and there's a mistaken identity where the the, the struggling author who is sent uh, with his way of words to convince uh, these people that they should buy his play is confused for the Duke who is sent there to seduce Nicole Kidman in return for a ton of money and financing for the, the theater. And that's the story. The man falls in love for the first time. The woman who's never been in love and is just the, um, you know, she, 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 she rents her passions is, is, is going to be challenged between getting everything she wants. And there's other complication. And this isn't a spoiler because it's established literally in the, the one of the first things in the movie, unbeknownst to almost everyone, including Nicole Kidman, she's dying of ter- tuberculosis, which mm-hmm. uh, heightens the romanticism. Who will win the affections of this this dying young woman? Will it be the the bohemian penniless pauper or will it be the rich and privileged duke? Oh, boy. I bet you never guess. Uh, But yeah, it's it's a lot of it's it's a lot of fun to see it uh, go through its 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 paces. Uh, Where do we go now, man? Um, I want to say one thing. The next few, uh, I'm going to subject you to some things on the next few uh, Double Dern Fridays or Saturdays we have, because Ewan McGregor at this time, uh, like the year later, made this movie called Down With Love with Renee Zellweger, which is ostensibly a a film set in the 60s about a like a confirmed, not a confirmed bachelor that has an entirely different meaning. Uh, a, like you know, Playboy bachelor and a female lib that uh that that says that she hates hates love, and it's a romantic comedy that's like really really fucking funny and tight. And simultaneously, before that, uh, Renee Zellweger had starred in the 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 very very good show show tune play Chicago. Those like uh, Down With Love is not a musical. Chicago very much is. But they form like a nice little like uh, Zellweger, uh, um, uh, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi love trilogy. And I think I think you will like it. I think you'll really like it. But we'll see. Zellweger is a very hard sell for me. She's that spectrum I do not tune into. Oh, no. Oh, shit. That might be complicated. That might be that might complicate things. Maybe we'll start (laughs) with Down With Love. And if you hate that, then we won't go into Chicago. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> sure. But, but that the, these are, I think, films that pair very well together. If uh, you just watched Moulin Rouge for its 20th anniversary and you're wanting to keep the good, the, wanting to keep this kind of party going, uh, I highly recommend those. Um. Okay. Where do we go to now? Uh, I like the meta of this movie. There's a little bit of it. It's not. It's not like a ton. Well, ac- actually, it is because the whole movie is basically a meta within a meta, right? Like it's it's the writer who has fallen in love with the courtesan and they've got the Duke there who's disguised or, or, you know, who is signified by uh, this Maharaja um, Mm -hmm. in the play that they're writing. And there's like all that subterfuge and that's kind of meta in itself. But then they do other things within this movie that's meta on the level of the movie making itself like, there's one scene where they're rehearsing this play and then uh, the Herald is uh, talking about, okay, tomorrow we're going to be rehearsing uh, act two. The lovers are discovered. And this is when they're up smooching in the balcony, right? Uh, Or behind the scenes. And then he immediately like discovers act two begins of, of the movie you're watching and he discovers Mm -hmm. them. And I, I always kind of like that, you know, writers doing things on screen that are very writerly. Yeah, uh, there's a movie within a movie happening here. Yeah, and the movie knows it's a movie, or at least the audience, you know, is is kind of nudged and said, hey, we're making a movie here. It, I don't know. Sometimes that's fun. It can go overboard, like but it doesn't in this movie. I feel like we're explicitly brought in as the audience when during that, like, um, uh, the uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit jukebox montage in the beginning where, like, all the Bowdy audience has the here we are now entertain us line. Yeah. 
and it kind of looks the, the 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 camera spinning around, including the audience in this. And then there's a line between the audience and the performers. And I feel like that then the f- camera firmly passes that fi- one final time. And like we become the audience. Mm-hmm. So it does feel like, you know, we're still playing a part in all the different twists and turns in like the gasps and shocks and cl- applause of the audience. Like it's supposed to kind of mirror us. And I thought. There's not there's I've seen a lot of thing, you know, shows about a show, movies about movies or movies about the other thing. Like, you know, this is very Amadeus where it's a movie about people making music, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's there's there or uh, uh, synecdoche. Is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. that or send um, that? That's that's a movie about making a big play or a, a big production. The producers, those things are always fun. But this one, like, really explicitly makes, like, the audience surrogate and the audience kind of feel welded together, which I thought was was pretty cool. Yeah, I was looking for other points uh, of the movie where it was doing that and maybe a larger thing that it was trying to say about, like, you know, making making art for money's sake, which is like the courtesan relationship, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Or making art for art's sake which is more the love mm. angle of this and i was trying to see if they were playing with that much i couldn't really tell but i'm not very sophisticated when it comes to that stuff yeah there's also i that's the thing is watching this as an older wiser because there's something that uh ebert wrote in his review about uh uh those that think they can buy someone's affection or suckers a wise person is content to merely rent it um like it, there's also something interesting about that, about both the Duke and uh, Ewan McGregor's character, because the Duke wants not just to, you know, buy a knight with Sabine here. Is that her name? Uh, Nicole Kidman's character doesn't does want to Satine. That's right. Doesn't want to yeah. just rent a night with her or even like a long term engagement, a girlfriend experience. He wants her lock, stock and barrel. Well, you can't have that. M- meanwhile, uh, Ewan McGregor has nothing to offer. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Nicole Kidman, except for his love. Mm-hmm. So, like, there is a logical thing, which is let her fuck the Duke and get the financing, and then you know, like, what? How? And the thing is, like, where is the line between that? Because they're all actors, so you're already in a situation where she has to make fake love to another man in the play, mm-hmm. and then there's like sex workers that just like sell their pictures, and there's sex workers that actually. You know, and like, where is the line that you draw? I thought that was really interesting things to examine because honestly, I felt like uh, is it's like every time I hear Roxanne this uh, yeah. saying, I always think like, just fucking leave her, dude. <laughs> She's making a lot of money, and she doesn't want to be responsible. She doesn't want to be dependent on your dumb ass because it'll you'll probably turn like a, a abusive, or you'll never get over the idea that she's had sex with a hundred different penises, and you know, like like just just get the hell out of here. Stop stop loading her up with all that bullshit. But yet, that's also still like I real I, I'm still the minority in in, in public opinion. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel yeah, stuff, and you know? it's lucky for that relationship that the movie ends the way it does, right? Because they never have to approach those ideas. They it, you right. can, she can be this perfect memory of love in his mind, and there yeah. is no continuation. There is no chance for like relapse of jealousy. Uh, all the things that you would expect may, might happen later. Yeah, and and that's the other thing is like um, these are both um, even though they're I think you're supposed to understand these people are well into their adulthood. Uh, They act like 16 year olds, but that's because they both confess that this is the first time they've ever been in love. Mm -hmm. You do all kinds of stupid shit the first few times you're in love, like you get as you get your heart broken and you. But that's where the Nat King Cole, like uh, the greatest thing you ever learn is to just love and be loved in return. Mm -hmm. Like. You know, every time you go into a new relationship, you got to you got to go into the score of zero, zero. Yeah. You can't be holding like a big racked up score from the last one or better yet. Maybe when you enter a relationship, you don't keep score. And when you find yourself keeping score, <laughs> that's a sign that your relationship is ending or maybe shifting into a different phase or a different type of relationship. And that's fine. But like the first few, I don't know, and some people maybe take dozens, but the first, the, you know, like that, this, there is something uniquely piercing about that first love and how unique you think it is and how it mm-hmm. can't ever be replicated etc cetera, etc cetera. um and yeah. watching this stuff it, it reminds my old heart my old withered cynical heart of what that felt like um while sure. also thinking it's deeply foolish uh <laughs> right and that's the thing is like this is almost like the idea that she is dying um like this is a completely 
I think unconsummated and largely for except for brief uh, moments in the film unrequited uh, romance is like adds to like that's that's makes it even more of what this thing is like it's a first time love and it's also a tragic love like Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. um, and like I said it's a lot of fun to watch but uh, I do question what this relationship would be like six months after the movie if uh, Satine was going to be fine right you know. Um, and I get there was also I, I guess a, um, one of the early editions of the draft had Ewan McGregor singing this song, her the story to his like three year old daughter because, huh. you know, him and Satine had had really and she had been, you know, and she died. She gave birth right before she died. And I don't know, because that's the thing. It's like, man, there's a line between like having this be a conventional romantic happy ending where they just you know, she just chooses the, the sitar player over the Maharaji. And that's kind of schmaltzy. And then there's like taking it fully into fucking Les Mis territory where it's just a goddamn tearjerker ball kind of fest. And mm-hmm. I feel like this movie really pitched it right down the middle. Yeah, maybe it's because I didn't feel super compelled by the love story. Like, I, I was enjoying this movie probably for all the wrong reasons, for the comedy, for the spectacle, uh, things that they probably want me to enjoy it for. But they probably at the end want me to go. God damn, that's a romantic love story. And I didn't care about that part. And so, like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess they pitched it down the middle. It's it, it didn't hit me like they feels like they want it to be this heart wrenching tragedy of a story. And I'm like, yeah, it's sad, but no more sad than any of the other hundred movies I've seen that end uh, in tragedy. Yeah, I, I get it, man. You hate uh, you hate Nicole Kidman. Jesus, you hate Although- Australian actresses of all types. Like God, yeah. Oh, is she Australian? I can move on. That. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh, the the nepotism. <laughs> Australians hiring Australians. Uh, I, careful. I, I, Important part of her fan base. Are you're fucking with here, Jim? <laughs> I, I will say that I'm I'm beginning to understand the power of the musical uh, a little bit more than I used to because there's a way there's a a heightened intensity to everything that a song can bring to, to an emotional cue that you don't really get from like a conversation. Um, yeah. Or, or from a single line, right. It gives you time and space to develop an emotion thoroughly and, and deeply. Whereas, you know, you could have a few lines, but if, if you try to do it in a conversation, it would feel like repeating yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You can get emotionally, um, in a five minute musical montage where it would take you a novel to get to intellectually yeah. Yeah. Um, or like an entire HBO miniseries, you know, to get that kind of like you, you, you know, it, the, this movie musicals can do in like five or 10 minutes what the leftovers takes an entire season to do. Now, mm-hmm. that's not saying what the leftovers and do isn't powerful because that slow build can be, you know, the, uh, a tough thing to replicate and a uniquely you know, emotional title experience of its own, but like, yeah, yeah, shortcut to like the limbic centers seems like song and dance, man, for sure. Uh, they can't make you drink wine before you, but they can pump you full of <laughs> happy chemicals through song and dance. Um, and, and when that's like the entire point, when it's like constructed that way, as opposed to like artificially, Oh, this is the dramatic moment. So let's pump a bunch of music behind it and swell yeah. those violins. Right. Really make them feel that with the soundtrack that can feel artificial and that can take you out of it. Whereas if it's constructed that way from the beginning, you're just in that mode the whole time. What do we think of uh, John Leguizamo in this movie? Because he's been in things that I've really enjoyed and he's been in things I thought were terrible, like super Mario brothers, uh, spawn kind of, uh, <laughs> also enjoy super I, Mario brothers, but yes, I take your meaning. <laughs> what do you, what do you, what do you think of, uh, his performance in this film? Uh, I, so I like him in this movie. I think it's an interesting, funny performance, but I don't overall know how I feel about the character. Um, Cause apparently this is a real dude, right? This to mm-hmm. uh, Toulouse guy mm-hmm. was a real dude in the real Moulin Rouge. Um, as much of any of them are the real life counterparts of their historical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a dude with that name, uh, but they've made him into such a character and, and he did have, uh, you know, some health issues that caused his, his, the way I read it on Wikipedia, his legs to stop growing. He had a full, fully developed torso, but his legs just stopped growing because of like some genetic Mm. disease and, and rickets, I guess, complicated things. Um, so, so 
you know, they're, they're taking elements of real life, but then the character becomes such a joke that I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, he starts off pretty good there, but also the film is trying to make him look like he's got short legs and that it's the one effect they're trying to do conventionally. And it's just like, I've seen Lord of the Rings. I know how you can do this and make it look good. Yeah. And this is a little bit more uh, Manos Hands of Fate. Uh, I just couldn't you know, stop like, myself hey, this thinking. Guy's actually, this, this guy's supposed to have goat legs, but what it really looks like is he just got big, bulgy knees, you know? like <laughs> Right. I mean, he probably did have big, bulgy legs it. by the end of this, because he had to spend the entire filming he, in horse stance, right? Like, he was... Right. And in I, those costumes, did, those dick-shaped uh, potion bottle co- or sitar uh, yeah, yeah, costumes... Yeah. That uh-huh. seemed really hard. Well, did you? I, I read that he said in an interview that uh, he actually had to do like six weeks of physical therapy because of the fucked up things it did to his legs and back to be hunched over like this for oh hours on end, days on days in a row, doing these complicated routines, swinging from ropes and stuff. So, like, yeah, he suffered for it. But the whole time, I'm like, this is John Leguizamo in some bizarre fucking makeup get up and. Mm you know dwarf appropriation like it's just right uh, i'm like leaving the morality of all that but like it just it just didn't work man uh Hmm. yeah i don't know um i i really liked it that's the thing it's like i i kind of thought he was kind of cool in the beginning but he became such a more and more of a farce to where like i don't i don't like the idea that he forgot his line and he just suddenly remembered it and come swinging in he's also Mm -hmm. like the hero like why why not let him actually be a little swashbuckling and yeah. like, you know, taking out this dude with the gun instead of making it be like he's like like a Mr. Magoo type of joke where he's just kind of like, you know, getting tripped up in cables and falling in and being kind of human wrecking ball. I, I don't know. It's, I felt like the one thing that just consistently didn't work in the humor. Um, yeah, and I was like I said, I, I wasn't going to get pissed at like they're trying to make him look like a, a, a dwarf. It's just more of like it just didn't work and it was distracting. Yeah, I get you. I could agree with that. Uh, you know who did uh, work for me was what? the Duke. Uh, I, I can't say enough about how good this Richard Roxburgh guy is. Uh-huh. That his name? Uh, yeah, I think so. I could. He, who knows? It could be Roxborough. It could be yeah, right. Robba. It uh, could. Who, I, I, yeah, I don't have the tongue for this. So, and he hasn't I done. Apologize. A lot of like really high profile stuff that I've seen uh, in the ensuing twenty years. It seems like he's made a a couple of bad picks on movies, um, but I don't know. Maybe people who are more cultured than I uh, really love this guy. But he's great. He's fantastic in this role. Uh, I kept thinking, although I will say that Gary Oldman should be playing this character. Every time he hmm. was on screen, I'm like, I'm half seeing Gary Oldman in this role. Although I I don't know I. Gary Oldman could definitely pull it off. I, I don't want to like also say Gary Oldman it, pitching hundred miles an hour might just steal Nicole, Nicole Kidman. She might pick the Maharaji. Right. Right. You know, if he's like in full Bram Stoker mode, like it's mm-hmm. like, fuck, go home. Obi-Wan, you got no powers here. <laughs> what is it about this character that makes me think Gary Oldman should be playing him? Is it just because I've seen it's, fifth element and I've seen this and yeah, no, you can definitely see how like a really triple a character actor could knock this one out of the park. Yeah. And this guy does a really good job. Um, he's fantastic. But he's yeah. yeah, but he's, he's really, um, it's like, uh, in, in, in singing the rain, like Debbie Reynolds keeping up with Gene Kelly, but like, you can tell she's the 19 year old that just started dancing six weeks ago. And mm-hmm. he's like fucking been doing this for years. Like, yeah. If if you got someone in there that could like really really fucking hoof it, then what? How much? But but also like I don't know. That's part of the charm too. That there's a couple of uh, uh, imperfections. It does lead to some ambiguity though, because like <sighs> the Duke is so stupid, or he wants to believe this uh, Satine loves him that he falls yeah. for these ridiculous lies. And the the best one is when Jim Broadbent conv- Broadbent convinces him that the reason he should stood him up on this date is because she's so in love with him and she's so ashamed of her, you know, Roxanne red light past that she wants to go confess to a priest so she can be like a virgin for him the very first time. Yeah. It, it goes into his jukebox like a virgin mashup. Um, but halfway through the performance, it turns like the Duke. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure, like, 
is the is the tension here that the Duke is so inflamed in passion that he might like rape Zidler? I, I think so. Or is yeah. it the horror that this is this how this guy shows true passion? Like once his passion is in a flame, he just turns into this like fucking cr- grasping clawed creep. He's literally coming uh, at you like he is literally doing the creep cl- like yeah, his SNL script. He's jo- what John went was I forget the guys. Yeah, he's he's he's, mm-hmm. he's doing that. It's like we really really weird. And I feel like um, Gary Oldman would have known which lane to put be in, and we wouldn't have the ambiguity. We'd be like, oh mm-hmm. no, he just wants to. He's 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 just horny for love and he's going to take it from wherever versus like, Oh no, this is just this guy. Like, Oh my God, the hell that's that Satine's going to be in because like, if he ever, uh, uh yeah, I don't know. But, uh, it started like the tell. last, last 30 seconds of that scene. I'm like, I'm like, it's been 20 years <laughs> since I've seen, or it's been like uh, 15 years. Since I've seen this movie. I, I don't remember what happens here. Oh my God. What is this going to end with? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know, man, because sometimes movies go for that switcheroo, that that like gear shift in the middle. Like the the most recent one I can think of, actually, from we just uh, talked about this movie in a private podcast recording on Monday. Uh, oh. Cobra has a scene like this uh, where I don't understand uh, somehow during the car chase in Cobra, it turns from murderers with Uzis coming after Sylvester Stallone and Bridget Nielsen to Bridget Nielsen and Sylvester Stallone coming after the murderers. And mm-hmm. I couldn't like tell you when that <laughs> happened, but that's the same kind of vibe as this scene, right? It, it becomes like, yeah, yeah the, the, the Duke has turned <laughs> on this guy in a bad way. I, or, or like, or like in so this, it reminded it's like it's. I, I was thinking, are they going for like a sun like a hot? Where like the end, the old admiral guys paired off with Jack Lemon, and Jack Lemon's pretending to be a woman this whole movie, and he finally is like, mm. "Look, there's something you need to know about me." And the 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 old guys just like, "Eh, nobody's perfect." Like <laughs> he's just gonna like just like is the Duke just gonna metaphorically roll with this punch? Or I, I it was it had a a wild kind of uh, wild energy, yeah. Um, and that's the thing is like, like also that. like later on in the film, maybe they're also foreshadowing like because you might be thinking like, oh, maybe the maybe the Duke has a point. Maybe the Duke is being treated a little unfair. But like it, it gets to a point where like he legitimately does try to rape uh, Satine mm-hmm. and she's only saved by one of her fellow castmates. So it's like maybe you take that and like, hey, maybe this is just the way this guy is once you strip his gentility away. Oh, yeah. His, his lawyers. Um, he's just left with his. uh gross creepy ass and his his dude his his muscle maybe we should talk about something better uh i want to talk about the sets in this movie because god damn they're they're gorgeous one like you have that elephant uh room which apparently i guess is the opium den uh but it's like her green room essentially or eh, eh. The place where she does her business. Um, it's the world's greatest VIP room. And that's a yeah, fact. For sure. Uh, that's a great absolutely set. sex happening in this <laughs> in this uh, VIP room. For sure. Uh, that, that is a great set. I love how, you know, it has this outdoor space where she can kind of go up to the top of the elephant. And it's got, uh, you know, a little balcony up there sort of thing. Uh, uh, whatever they're called. I like a pergola sort of thing. Um, yeah. And then there's a scene where like they're, you know, her and you and are dancing and singing and they dance and sing their way outside. And like they are, it, it's not like the most extravagant or the flashiest of sets, but it was the one that I thought was the coolest. It's the one where like the Eiffel Tower is about human sized and they mm-hmm. are like giant Godzilla creatures just mm-hmm. sort of singing and dancing their way across the skyline of Paris in the clouds. That's, that's where the magical realism really yeah. kicks in hard. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do like that. The elephant set was, and that's the thing. It's like, man, all that shit, I guess was real. Or maybe it's like the elephant room wasn't that big, but it kind of yeah. is. And like, all like, I, I guess like, the scale must have been big because they say that there was a spiral staircase in one of the elephant's legs that took you up there. So, like, that gives you an idea of, like, well, that's a pretty big fucking leg. So maybe it was that big and it, it did have, like, some kind of balcony out the thing's ass and it had, like, this big tower structure shooting out of its back. And 
I yeah. know widows walk up there. So, but, but yeah, like you take a place that's already kind of magical and then you layer that little like pixie dust, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a couple of times where it's, it's funny. Cause like, I thought the movie was going to explicitly make this be, and maybe you're supposed to understand that now that I think about it, but like when he tries absinthe for the first time and the green fairy starts coming out, um, and like that's the first time the movie kind of go shifts to that gear and i thought mm-hmm. maybe that'd just be a regular recurring thing you're supposed to understand these people are drunk or maybe on opium or maybe just high on love but uh because that's the only time it's like explicitly connected to like drug use everything yeah, else he, is just uh in that scene, he, man doesn't he say like this is where i developed my love of absinthe right um so so, so there's an implication there yeah Ah, I see. I see. Okay. Then maybe Probably. a lot of the rest of this movie is heightened by some background intoxication. Maybe they're always shooting stuff down Nicole Kidman's throat, which I assume is kind of some kind of laudanum or some kind of pain, pain killing mm-hmm. agent. So I could see where she's dripping balls. Yeah. Speaking of that uh, human scale Eiffel Tower, one of my favorite moments of the film is in the climax where uh, Leguizamo knocks the guys or there's this struggle for the gun that gets knocked out ultimately um because ziggler mm. punches the duke out and it flies out the window and he just has it like comically like almost in a ed wood kind of way fly across the parisian skate do a et in front of the moon and then bonk off the human scale eiffel tower yeah <laughs> it's weird. i fucking love that it's also one of the longest shots in the film it's like five seconds long it just holds this just holds this <laughs> right. this gun going off and it's just i it, and it's in the middle of just like this insane thing mm-hmm. this kind of like moment of outside the quiet streets of paris this gun gone, bonking off this i i this, it's it really tickled me got one of the biggest laughs in the movie from me and those um outside paris scenes those Tower tower scenes also have like the moon sort of singing backup. I don't know if you'd notice that, but almost kind of looks like the dew. Kind of, I don't know if they're going for anything like mm. that or if that's just you know fancy moon. Interesting. Man. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I, th- I thought that was entertaining. If it, yeah, I I didn't know, but that would make sense because there's a lot of now that I'm thinking about, it, there's a lot of like framing when they're doing their final musical number and he's stepped into the role of the sitar uh, sitar player. Mm-hmm. where they frame the Duke in the audience and he's like the only face that kind of stands out in the black. And so he's kind of like that moon like face. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, and I, I knew that the movie didn't end like this, but there's a couple points where you almost think that the Duke is going to like, Hey man, I, this is crazy. You can't own a person. You can't make them love. I'm going to be the bigger man here. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to do the fucking Phantom of the opera bullshit. I'm not, I'm not going to do the, the, um, Billy Zane Titanic shit. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna you know, let let this thing go. And of course he doesn't. But like, I don't know. Maybe that, maybe some of that stuff is in there to kind of subconsciously make you think it's possible. Could be. Okay, I got some other things. Um, hit me. There were a couple of questions I have uh, about this movie. One being, what is the force that's darker than jealousy and stronger than love? I think I know the answer, but I'm curious. Death. Okay. Yeah. It's the only Clearly. thing you can break them. Um, all right. Question one answered. Question two. This other actor who goes up to the Duke and says, uh, hey, you know, he's writing a whole story about you and their secret love, right? Why does she do the that? The fucking narc. Why would not, she do I, I, that? Is it not is, very uh, bohemian of her, is it? <laughs> well, it's not very bohemian. And B it destroys her job, right? Like they're writing this grand play and she's got a job at this place. If he shuts the place down, she's out of work. I, I think this I don't is understand a, this the motivation. Be, I think this movie was, is threatening to be slightly too long. And I think there could have been uh, a thing that makes us, but I think you're supposed to understand that she is jealous of Satine and but they wants, never like, and, and also I think, it. I think she overhears like the doctor and them talking about that she's going to die pretty soon anyway. So she's kind of like, well, if I can throw her over and be the sateen role, if I'm her, like, because isn't she her? Did they, I don't know. They don't do enough of, with that character to let they me don't to actually indicate a, any of that stuff. So they need a minute or two. They need a minute or two to throw in a little bit of that black swan energy where you've got a jealous person yeah. who's an understudy and um, has an event. And also like something the audience can like, it's not ridiculous. Like 
you know, she no. is going to die and she is threatened. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she, this is the deed to this place. She is threatening the terms like, you know, but yeah, it's not very, although I guess, um, which of the values of, of truth, freedom, beauty, and love win? Because if you lie in service mm-hmm. of freedom and, or uh, freedom, beauty, and love, then you're betraying truth, right? Mm. So, I think love is the, the main one this movie wants to consider. It's all you need is what they say. It's true. It's what they say. Jesus said it was the, the, the most important part of the commandment. So uh, there's two out of two out of two historical figures slash stupid movies agree. Love. Love is the thing. And the Beatles. It's, it's amazing for a movie that's supposedly all about love. They didn't teach me about the power of love nearly as much as Back to the Future did. <laughs> it's a real shame. <laughs> Well, that's one song they they left off the <laughs> couldn't jukebox, get the rights to. <laughs> couldn't, yeah, it's the one. Too expensive, still, you know. They're counting their nickels after they paid the the Beatles and the the state of Mister Cole, and they're like, ah, I just don't have enough left over for yeah. Huey Lewis and the news. Yeah, Huey wanted a part of the movie, probably. He wanted yeah. like a minor they could, role. They could do and... Huey or the news, but both of them together, it's just oof, it's too much. <laughs> right. It's too much. Um, so I don't know. If that's the only real complaint I have about this movie is they didn't. They didn't properly set up that moment. Yeah. But everything else is uh, great. Yeah. Anything else that uh, we have to talk about this movie? I mean, there's a couple of minor pieces of trivia, but I didn't even think they're like, I guess there was this controversy that to come, uh, the come what may song, which is the original song. Um, at first appearing in this song or this movie was actually written for Romeo plus Juliet, but shelved never used. Hmm. Um, and the Oscars used that to smack down the, uh, the, the, the nomination for best original song because what? it's an original song, but it wasn't wrote specifically for this film. The fuck. Yeah. I thought, like I said, it's like, it's like, that's one of those things. Weak. It's like, it's hard to get, get, get pissed about a 20 year old Oscar controversy, but like, that seems kind of horse shit. Like if uh, someone writes a song for an album and they're like, you know what? I just, I need to tool this a little bit. It's not right. I'm going to keep it in my back pocket, put it out two albums later. And there's a mega hit and the Grammy's like, well, you actually wrote that for an album that came out eight years ago. Right. So get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like, but where do I, I record and release it? Motherfucker. Like that's, yeah, what this is it's why all I about. can't, this is why I can't take this shit seriously, man. It's yeah. just, it seems, seems dumb. It's, it's less about rewarding the best and just, you know, I don't know. They did reward arbitrary subjective like art. What's that? There there were two Academy Awards won by this movie for art direction and best costume design. I remember rooting for this. I remember rooting for this movie because I was kind of like really invested in the Oscars um, back then because like this was the era where like the the prequels are making noise and Lord of the Rings was making noise and I had a lot of skin in the Mm -hmm. game. So like, but what, yeah, what, what did it, what did it come home with? You said, uh, costume design and art direction. How could it not honestly win art direction? That's is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I guess, uh, old E. E. Wan. None of none of the men uh, were nominated for any awards. Nicole Kidman got nominated for best actress. Uh, was nominated for best picture, editing, makeup, sound, cinematography, all that stuff. Uh, didn't win any of those. No. Hmm. Well, it had some stiff. I was just looking at some of that that year. It's like, you know, that was running up against Lord of the Rings Fellowship, Beautiful Mind, Black Hawk Down, um, Godsford Park, Monsters Ball. Like there's hmm. a lot of uh, Pearl fucking Harbor. What? <laughs> what? For technical stuff, right? Probably had to be. Ben Training Affleck's Day, not yeah. getting any nominations for Pearl Harbor. It's a pretty, pretty good year in a uh, pretty good year in cinema. Was he in that? I don't even remember. Uh, Yeah. I will say it looks like uh, more than 50 million bucks. Uh, it looks like about 180 million bucks, which is what it made in the box office. And that's just in North America, right? That wasn't like worldwide totals. Uh, It'd be interesting to see how that did worldwide because it is very, I do feel like he hit, like he hit the nail on the head where like, you don't have to speak a lick of English to understand. You could watch this movie, no subtitles and know exactly what the hell is going on at all times. Right. Uh, no, that was international. Or worldwide, huh. it did 180. Domestic wow, was only 57. What the fuck? I thought this was a much bigger. Maybe it's because I hung out with a bunch of artistic uh, doofuses. Could be uh, at the time, like you. But like, I remember this movie being much bigger in my cultural consciousness. Maybe it's a song too. 
Yeah. Because that was like, it was fucking on everything. That <laughs> I bet summer. that soundtrack made $58 million at yeah, least. Might have. I might have on the basis of that single. So. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. I think that puts to bed Moulin Rouge. Happy 20th anniversary. Uh, you're, you're, you're a beautiful, beautiful thing to look at. And I'm glad you exist. We'll be back next week with another prestige movie. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.